Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, political and policy analyst, Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, long time no here. Yeah, it's, it's been a while and it's so great to so great to have you back and and I know there are a number of listeners when I when I uh mentioned that you would be back here today, they were very excited about that. And so I am really looking forward to doing the show with you today. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to be here. It's been a hot minute. It's been kind of a wild year. We were talking about that uh-huh. <laughs> before the show. Um, but yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to be back. A lot has changed and a lot yeah, to talk about, I guess. <laughs> definitely. And just just to let folks know what, what we are going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about the uh, special counsel that Attorney General Garland announced in the Trump case and uh, Supreme Court's ruling on Donald Trump's tax returns, uh, Joe Biden, the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia, the possibility for some bipartisan marijuana legislation in the lame duck sector. So a whole lot to get to, and we're going to get started on that in just one second. Okay, Kristen, so you want to get us uh, started off here today? Yeah, so um, our first topic is going to be that special counsel story that you mentioned, Um, just to give everybody an overview. Uh, Last Friday, which was November 18th, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed special prosecutor Jack Smith to oversee the investigations related to former President Trump. Um, And to give you a little background there, Jack Smith is formerly chief of the Justice Department's investigation unit, which oversaw public corruption. So this move was said to be in response to recent developments, especially with Trump's announcement that he'll run for president again. Um, The investigations include a couple of different focus points, um, including Trump's uh, his alleged national security secrets, the retention of national security secrets at Mar-a-Lago and the alleged efforts to subvert the 2020 election. So this is going to be pretty comprehensive. Um, And then, of course, in response, Republicans have questions about Smith's impartiality. Um, He has a pretty well-documented history of, uh, as I I believe Elise Stefanik uh, put it, playing a role in the IRS's targeting of conservative nonprofits during the Obama era. And also he's got some personal ties to Democrat political donations via his wife. So there's a history there. So, of course, as usual, we have 
disagreement about his impartiality and whether or not uh, the DOJ is weaponizing this. So that kind of gives us a little bit of background into both sides of this story. Um, that's all I got. That's the background. I'm a little rusty. How'd I do? Yeah, no, I, I think I think really good, uh, especially, you know, uh, on that weaponizing point. It seems to me that mm-hmm. there's there's basically the, the only person that could have been appointed uh, to, to head this investigation where it wouldn't have been weaponizing would be, I don't know, if, if Garland appointed Donald Trump to investigate this and he would have said, no, <laughs> which uh, we're good. So but but I mean, I, I think he Smith fits the mold of almost all of these special prosecutors that we've seen over time. They're people who really have stellar credentials, are incredibly well-regarded by, really by, I would say, centrists on both sides. But there are always going to be things that you can find or some sort of connections, because even though Smith is, uh, you know, is uh, an independent, he's not affiliated directly with any party, people have... People have ties and so forth, and, and you know, or at least inclinations. But I don't think there's any inclination or any any clear evidence that I see that he has it out for Trump in any way or Republicans in any way. And I expect that you know he's going to do a he's going to do a, a reasonable job, just like I expect that John Durham was going to do a reasonable job when Attorney General at the time Barr appointed him to look into the. Uh, FBI's Russia probe. And so, you know, partisans are going to say what partisans are going to say. But but to me, this is a, a solid choice. And I think that the attorney general did the right thing in appointing a, a special counsel, because as he, you know, as Garland pointed out in the announcement, hey, Donald Trump has now announced that he's a candidate. And given this, I think it's I think it's right for us to have some sort of separation in this investigation. So that, that's kind of my take on Smith and the appointment of a special counsel in the first place. Well, what do you think about this move? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I think I understand the point of a special counsel. I understand that that, that the point of, you know, finding somebody who is so impartial is important, but I think it's it's highly, highly, highly unlikely for the reasons you just laid out. I think it's impossible, or, or I should say nearly impossible, to find somebody with no political ties whatsoever. Um, do I think that, uh, you know, obviously Merrick Garland, do I think he's going to be choosing somebody who has ties to the Republican Party, somebody who, you know, maybe has a, a spouse who donated to the Republican Party? Probably not. I mean, I, I think this is a likely choice. But I think in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, he's proven himself to be, you know, pretty diligent in terms of, you know, he, he has a pretty good track record. He was chief of the Justice Department's investigation unit overseeing public corruption. He has the credentials for it. I mean, my thought is when it comes to, you know, what happened at Mar-a-Lago and the retention of those documents and, you know, everything kind of swirling around 2020, I kind of feel like, you know, if you if you want to investigate, investigate, you know, let the chips <laughs> fall where they where they may. Uh, let's see what happens. Um, I Like you said, I don't think we're going to find somebody who's entirely impartial. Um, you know, I think if the again, like I always say this, but if, if the tables were turned, I, I think we, you know, you would have heard about it from Democrats if a Republican Attorney General had appointed somebody with, you know, ties to the Republican Party in some form or fashion, a spouse had donated, et cetera, et cetera, they would have found fault with it. So, I, you know, I'm just, I guess, I just, I'm kind of, eh, yeah, use a millennial yeah. term. I, you know, it's, it's, I think this is going to play out as it plays out. 
you know, whether or not it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's going to blow up in their faces or not, that remains to be seen. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't have too many problems with Jack Smith. He seems pretty good on paper. Let's see what he does. Now, if he does something wrong, I'll be the first to call it out. But, um, you know, let's see how he does. I, I, you know, I don't really see too much evidence that he's going to be impartial either. I, I, I think that, I guess on the on the partial, I think there's a distinction I'd want to make between having some sort of partisan inclination, which I think it's almost impossible right. to be in politics, to be even be interested in politics and just say, oh, no, I just I just follow it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just you, you have at right, least some right. sort of a, a ideological framework. But I think that there are people who are better or worse at at uh, correcting for that ideological framework and being impartial in terms of how the law is applied. And, and I think that's, that's an important distinction. So I'm not saying that he's, he's unideological as I don't think any of the special special prosecutors or special counsels have been. You, you can't be you right. can't, psychologically. You can't yeah. be, you can't have, you can't not have implicit bias. Right. You know? But I think they yeah. can, they can recognize that and say, especially when it's about, you know, questions of has law been violated and should there be indictments i think that they can sort of take into account their that that sort of bias and and kind of correct for that to a certain extent and some obviously some people are better or worse but you know something that ken said on the show last week and this mm -hmm. had just broken when we started to talk about uh, when uh, when we started to record he said all of the it's interesting to him that all the special counsels have been republicans and and i thought I, I we didn't know anything about Smith's background at that point. I, thought, I, I wasn't sure about that, so I didn't comment. But I went in and did, did a little bit of digging. So for folks who don't know, the history of the special counsel or special prosecutor, they've actually we've actually had a number of them throughout the course of American political history. Actually, there were eight in the post-Civil War kind of pre-Watergate era. Uh, and then in 1978, we have this thing, the Ethics and Government Act, which was passed in, in the wake of all the Nixon stuff, basically. And that was when Congress actually, in Title VI of that, allowed for the appointment of what they called special prosecutors. That was later called independent counsels. And this independent counsel statute, though, expired in 1999 and hasn't been renewed. And this was Congress setting up these uh, procedures. And so since then, special counsels have been appointed by, attorney, uh, by the attorney general based on DOJ's internal uh, regulations and guidelines and so forth. And there have been one, two, three, four, five of them. Janet Reno appointed John Danforth to look at Waco, and she was a, she was a Democrat. Danforth was Republican. 2003, Bush appointed Patrick, Patrick Fitzgerald to look into the Valerie Plame affair, and Fitzgerald was kind of an independent sort of guy. Then we had 2017, uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, Rod Rosenstein appoints Robert Robert Mueller, uh, 2020, Barr appoints Durham, and now 2022, Garland appoints Smith. And so, I mean, it's been kind of a mix. The three of those five that had clear political inclinations, those were Republicans. There were two kind of more independent. So it's been kind of a kind of a mixed bag, essentially. I, I just kind of wanted to you know, you know, comment on on what, what Ken had to say. So Ken wasn't entirely right on that, uh, but I, I didn't want to say anything last week because I just didn't have the facts in front of me there. So, But, you know, getting to uh, your point about the chips falling where they may and how this, how this is going to work out, I, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on that as well. Do you... <laughs> 
do you think that, or what would you, I guess, what would you say is the likelihood of a Trump indictment coming out of this? Hmm. That's a really good question. Because it's funny because I, I, so my, again, like for anybody who is new listening, or if you remember when I was on the show regularly, I used to talk about the fact that my husband's an attorney, he's a criminal defense attorney. So this is, I, I love talking about legal issues, like political legal issues with him, because his take is, is pretty solid. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about an indictment, I, I think Democrats have largely throughout this election cycle, they were dangling that as a carrot. Um, I, I notice that a lot um, just because I I love, you know, my background is, is working in elections. I do a lot of political ads and I, you know, looked at Democrat political ads to see what they were doing. Just, you know, like size up the competition sort of a thing. And I noticed that they were using the possibility of an indictment as this carrot to get voters out to vote and to, to vote blue. Um, you know, especially like I live in South Florida. Um you know, obviously it didn't work for them here, but I know that they were using it a lot as, as this carrot. And, you know, the likelihood of an indictment, I think it's it's possible um, that there is an indictment for Trump. Um, you know, will it will it amount to anything? Will will anything come of it? I'm I think I'm 50-50 on it. I, I think I lean maybe towards nothing will come of it. Um, you know, I, I think the Democrats are trying very, very hard to throw everything they possibly can at the wall to ensure that he doesn't run. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons behind that, a lot, a lot of reasons and, and a lot of like deep seated anger towards Donald Trump and, and, you know, everything that happened. But it's interesting that you asked me that because I noticed that it was like a like an election tactic was that indictment used as a carrot. Could it happen? I think I'm 50 50 on it. I think it could happen. I mean, the investigation up until now, the investigations have kind of haven't led to anything substantial or meaningful. But, you know, I, 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 I don't like to say never. So, um, you know, I'm 50 50 on it with with a Republican House. I think it's going to be a little more difficult. Well, what, why why do you say that? Because it seems it seems I guess it seems to me that on those on those two issues that you mm -hmm. mentioned that that Smith has been charged with investigating one mm -hmm. seems fairly based on the evidence we have it, it it seems fairly clear to me or it seems to me I'll say this uh, there seems to be a fairly strong case that Donald Trump or the Trump people whatever uh uh withheld returning of these documents. Now, that, that's, a, I would say, in the grand scope of things, that's obviously a lot more minor than uh, interfering with the peaceful transfer of power, mm -hmm. trying to uh, overturn the democratic process in various states. I think that's obviously the much more serious charge and the much more difficult to yeah, prove for sure. charge. And, and I, I would, I think that it doesn't really matter who's in charge in the House or the Senate. I think that uh, Merrick Garland, who, who I feel is like, a, obviously he's a partisan, but I think he's a fair, fairly straight shooter sort of guy. Uh, I think the fact that the fact that uh, Barack Obama nominated him for the Supreme Court when he knew he was going to, well, that was back when he thought that maybe he would actually get a hearing, uh, that he needed to find somebody who was kind of 
middle of the road, but left leaning ish as opposed to some kind of a wild partisan who wouldn't have a chance in a Republican Senate. Turns out Garland didn't, but for other reasons that that uh, I think Garland is Garland thinks there's a case to be made here. And it seems to me there is. But I guess there's a distinction I would make between whether or not Donald Trump is guilty of these things and whether or not it makes sense to go ahead with an indictment for political reasons. Yeah. And I think when it comes to the House, you know, Republicans regaining control of the House, I was thinking about this last night. Um, You know, a lot of the stories we're talking about today and and mainly like when we get to the to the marijuana legislation story, um, I noticed that there's like this sense of urgency behind it. And it's because the House is going to be flipping in January. The Republicans are going to take control and there are going to be other issues on the table. And I think Democrats know that. And now we have this situation where we have a Democrat Senate. We have a Republican House and we essentially have gridlock, which we've experienced before. Um, And I think that the House is and I say this as a Republican who's, you know, a lot of times critical of other Republicans. You have a Republican House that's really gunning to ramp up investigations into various very partisan political issues. And I think there's going to be a lot of distraction. And I think it's going to be harder for Democrats. I mean, arguably, there's a lot of like media coverage that is that favors Democrats. But I think Democrats are going to have a hard time um, you know, winning over the court of public opinion like they have in the past uh, with something like this. I think it's going to be harder for them to get airtime. So I think, you know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm trying to remove my politics from it, I think if, you know, that there's a there's a certain window of time that that Democrats need to like step on this and get this ball rolling or else it's just going to kind of amount to nothing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I wonder, too. Whether or not this is one of these situations that Donald Trump wins either way, let's say he's indicted. And I think it's I think that it's a strong likelihood he's going to be indicted, at least on the on the documents charge. And and I think he's indicted. He can go to his kind of greatest witch hunt in American history sort of thing and see what they're doing to me. But if he's not, then it's baseless charges. Uh, Democrats waste all this time and effort and they can't find anything because I've said all along I'm innocent. I mean, I feel like Donald Trump set up kind of a, a heads you win, tails uh, or heads I win, tails you lose <laughs> sort of situation yeah. here. Uh, what do you think about that That politically? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, if if there's one thing now, you know, eventually we'll we'll get to this at some point today, I know. Um, but, you know, my thoughts about Donald Trump have changed somewhat. Um, but, you know, if, if there's one thing about Donald Trump, um, it's that he has complete control over um, the the public sort of, you know, he, he has a lot of supporters still, but a lot of like very, very dedicated, loyal supporters. He does not have the support of the media, but I feel kind of like it it goes without saying he lives rent free in the heads of many, both his supporters and his like strongest critics. And whatever he says is going to lead the news that day. And, you know, he's done this very, very well and very effectively in the past. I mean, you know, I admittedly, whenever he did this and he talked about witch hunts and things, I kind of rolled my eyes and, you know, looked for policy and and facts and data and what he was saying. But 
Um, you know, I think he's going to be very, very good at, you know, deflecting. Obviously, he's done that with his tax returns. He's done that for the past, what, six years, almost six years now, where he's just kind of like kick the can down the road, kick the can down the road. And he's and he's, you know, kept this going. And I think he's he's just going to keep this narrative going. And I think there are a lot of people that would will buy right into this narrative because, again, he has he still has loyal supporters. Um, you know, and it's it's just going to it's going to do nothing but anger people on both sides. Um, I think it's going to anger a lot of Democrats who feel like he's just playing politics and he's doing the same thing over again. I think it's going to anger a lot of uh, Republicans. I mean, from from just a Republican standpoint, I think it's going to anger a lot of Republicans, um, you know, who kind of feel like it's time to move on like me kind of feel like it's time to move on. Um, you know, he's he's keeping this in the news. He's living rent free, um, you know, in their heads. But at the same time, we're just keeping this this issue going over and over. And, you know, I think from a political standpoint, will it be effective if he does that? Yeah, I think it'll be effective to some extent. Um, it'll certainly get him airtime and it'll certainly allow him to, you know, control, uh, you know, the top news story every single day that he says it, um, you know, which you know, gets him a lot of free publicity. Yeah, in a way, I mean, let's say I was thinking of the scenarios and say, let's the kind of progressive left sort of perfect scenario here, right? Uh, uh, Donald Trump is convicted, is indicted and convicted on all charges against him related to the not just the documents, but also the uh, attempts to subvert the election. Now, even if that were to happen before November of 2024, which seems very unlikely given all the ways these things can be yeah, delayed. I agree. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. But even then, there's nothing that prevents Donald Trump from, from running as a candidate and, and winning. And can you imagine the visuals there? Donald Trump, I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump speaking from his prison cell sort of thing. And oh my God, look <laughs> at what the talk about. I mean, because right, Donald Trump is this fascinating combination of tough guy and victim. And he does that so well. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I guess, yeah, it's, it's, I know that a lot of both the mainstream media and a lot of the Republican establishment, and certainly your governor, Ron DeSantis, are sort of hoping this is the beginning of the end and the whole winter aura is falling away and Donald Trump will just kind of go away. I I am I am skeptical. I am highly skeptical of that. Uh, you know, but until until I see proof otherwise, I think once again that the the support, the fervency, and the depth of the support of of Donald Trump is being underestimated by people engaged in a lot of wishful thinking on both the right and the left, and they're going to come to to see that. I hope I'm wrong about that, but uh, that's my take anyway. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that's why there are a lot of prominent Republicans that have a lot of, you know, more mainstream Republican support. A lot of them are kind of staying quiet right now. They're keeping their heads down. They're not making waves. You know, a lot of them just, you know, battled it out for, you know, election victory. So they're, you know, they're they're dealing with that. And, you know, there's in some cases there's a transition. In some cases, you know, they're they're kind of like assembling their administrations. Like in the case, I'm thinking of, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis, who personally, I, I just I'm a big fan of Ron DeSantis. But, um, you know, I, th- I think they're, you know, trying to figure out where they're going to go policy wise in the next term. And they're trying to figure out what they're working with in terms of state houses. Like in, in his case, you know, in the case of a governor, you know, a state house and the state senate um, and and largely 
people like Governor Ron DeSantis, they're staying pretty quiet. Um, I mean, the only person in the last few weeks that's really said anything regarding a potential presidential run is Nikki Haley, yeah. uh, you know, on the Republican side. She's the only one that's come out and said anything, which I find very interesting. But, um, you know, I'm not I guess I'm not surprised by it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm noticing that they're staying quiet. And I think they're staying quiet because they want to see what Donald Trump does, because, again, we used to talk about this all the time when he was president. You know, Mike, but if like he, if there's one thing he is, he we can predict that he's unpredictable. And at any time, you know, he could say anything, he could do anything, um, you know. And so I think they're waiting to see exactly what's going to happen. They're waiting to see how all of this goes, you know, if it's going to take its toll on him. I, although I knew it's funny because I used to get into these like fervent debates with other Republicans who were saying he's not going to run. He's not going to run. And I'm like, I he's going to run whether I want him to or you want him to or you don't want him to. He's he will run because to him, this is a personal yeah. vendetta. At this point, and, and that's what's fueling him. And, and clearly, the rules don't apply. I mean, just just this week, right? He's he's at a at a, a meal with with uh, Kanye West and uh, uh, and some Nick Fuentes, ho- yeah, and some uh, yeah, the Holocaust yeah. denier guy. And you would think mm-hmm. in, in most in, in the the world that we used to know that that would be a an awful thing for a politician. But I, you know, that's. Donald Trump has his own has his own rules and and has established his own rule book. And until I am proven wrong, I am going to assume that Donald Trump will win the Republican nomination and will come very close to, if not uh, win the 2024 presidential election. That's my prediction. It's been my prediction for years, for the last few years now, and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, I I agree. Um, As much as I I would like to see us move in a different direction very, very, uh, very fervently, and I will work for, you know, moving the party along in that direction very, very hard. And I'll put my hat back in the ring there. Um, You know, I I think that, you know, Donald Trump, there's still, like you said, you can't underestimate the, the power, the gravitas he has within the party. You know, the 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 level of support that he has with a lot of Republicans and, um, you know, people are pretty upset right now with the Biden administration. There's there's a lot going on there. You know, a lot has happened in the last year since we've spoken. Definitely. So it's you know, there's there's a lot of anti Biden and just anti Democrat sentiment, um, you know, that that was some of it. Some of it was reflected, like in the state of Florida here. Some of it was reflected a few weeks ago. Um, But I think, you know, the midterms were were in some ways misleading. You know, I think that he probably will, uh, you know, take the nomination. I think he'll, I'll go that far. I'll say I predict that he gets the nomination for the Republican Party. Uh, we'll see if he wins. But there is a lot of, you know, sentiment and never underestimate his power to control that media narrative because he will. Yep, absolutely. He will. Yeah. So let's uh, take just a quick break. Then we'll come right back to uh, speaking of controlling the media narrative of uh, <laughs> one more Donald Trump story in just one second. OK, Kristen. So, as I said, we have another Donald Trump story, right, uh, to, to follow yes. up here. Yes. And I, I actually I, I alluded to it. We were talking about it a little bit with the last story, but it's, it's a nice little segue. Um, this is the story, uh, the, the ongoing saga of Trump's tax returns. <laughs> this past Tuesday, the Supreme Court ended a very long time back and forth dispute over whether Congress should have access to former President Donald Trump's tax returns. This has been going on since like what, 2016? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> this is, 
Yeah, pretty much. The returns will be obtained by the House Ways and Means Committee. And this is after Trump denied access to his attacks information five, almost six years ago at this point. Um, at the time, he was saying it was due to the fact that he was dealing with an ongoing audit. But of course, this doesn't really hold water anymore. Um, while Democrats are hailing this as a victory, um, there are a lot of critics on both the life, the, the right and the left who are saying that this is a, what's been labeled a hollow victory. So. The control of the House is shifting in January. This is a little more of a political issue than the previous issue we talked about. And time is ticking. Um, there's only kind of this limited amount of time to do actually do something about it before the focus moves to something else. So it's kind of I, I read, I think, in, on MSNBC, I was, you know, I always try to look at like, you know, left leaning sources, right leaning sources. And I was reading an op ed on MSNBC who said that uh, Democrats won won the battle but trump won the war so to speak so it's kind of, kind of interesting he's been able to fend this off for as long as he has what say you yeah you know i i thought donald trump's response was was a typical sort of trumpian kind of response right he said uh, <laughs> the supreme court they always rule against me oh yeah i was a horrific victim but and then he said it's unprecedented to be handing over tax returns and i thought well you know uh I guess to be forced to hand them over. Yeah, but every other presidential candidate's done it. And then he said it creates a terrible precedent for future presidents. And then I thought, well, seems like everyone else has just kind of done this as a matter of course. And then, of course, he mentioned Hunter Biden. And we're going to be hearing a lot about Hunter Biden and Hunter mm -hmm. Biden's laptop and all that. But I guess, yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like this is something that doesn't. Well, I don't know if it ever would have mattered. Actually, uh, in that, no, I know, agree. I uh, agree. Uh, because, well, Donald. I mean, from from the beginning, Donald. I mean, Donald Trump has just decided that he, he didn't want to turn over his tax returns, and like you said, he gave that kind of uh, disingenuous, "Well, I'm being audited" uh, response. Uh, a lot of people might not actually know that. At least when you once you are president, the IRS automatically audits every sitting president's tax return every year. How it works is that uh, the returns aren't seen by the IRS commissioner because that person is a political appointee. So the, the sitting president's returns go to someone called the deputy commissioner for services and enforcement. And he's like he or she is the, the top level civil service career official. And they give it to staff people and they have to have security clearances to look at that, understandably, that sort of thing. And so this is kind of a standard practice. And what the House Ways and Means Committee is saying is that, well, we want to their argument is that their legislative purpose for looking at for, for wanting President Trump or Donald Trump's returns is that we need to see whether or not we need to change this IRS process in some way, basically. And. That that's mm. what the courts have pretty much said. I mean, there's there's a law on the books that says very clearly passed in 1924 that either the House Ways and Means Committee or the Senate Finance Committee can get the tax returns of any individual taxpayer. And I mean, it's very that's why the courts have been unanimous in saying, yeah, they're entitled to this. And so while Trump clearly loses on the law in the end, that's what I say it doesn't really matter because nothing that would come out of Donald Trump's tax returns is going to, I don't think, change anyone's minds either way. So politically, it doesn't matter. Legally, I don't see how it matters. I don't buy the whole, well, 
we we are doing this to potentially change how the IRS deals with no. presidential tax no. returns. I mean, come on. So, yeah, I, I I don't think it's that that big of a deal. And I think you're right that Trump in in delaying this for so long is just sort of that I mean won the won the war. At least it's very much a pyrrhic victory. Yeah. Um. I think there is a lot of speculation, and I I think it's very, I think it's very interesting that the timing of this. Um, it's it, you know the the Democrats only have now it's like a couple of weeks to to try to turn this around and try to publish some findings and get something out, and they very well could. I mean, they very well could publish something. Well, I don't know if they will, but they could. Um, but I think a lot of people agree that this, you know, that there's some fishing going on there. This is a bit of a fishing expedition to try to find something, you know, unsavory going on in his in his tax records. And maybe if this had happened a couple of years ago, um, you know, maybe it would have happened. Maybe it would have been nothing, um, you know, as, as a lot of things have been, um, you know, where it's just kind of. But I think ultimately the, the, the political importance here is exactly as you put it. You put it so well is that it's not going to move the ticker in either direction. I think people who support Donald Trump are going to support Donald Trump no matter what. People who just, you know, hate Donald Trump, who dislike him, who don't want to see him run for office at all, you know, on both sides aren't going to be swayed. Uh, in any direction. And I think this is just going to end up in kind of another. Eh. Yeah, because because <laughs> so. if 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 uh, I mean, if Donald Trump is or any anyone is cheating on their taxes, well, then that's what audits are for. And if the audit had caught that and that had been, well, OK, that's one thing. But that's not no one's alleging that his uh, that he's I mean, no one's alleging that this audit process is is somehow wrong or corrupt or anything like that. It seems to me like a pretty rigorous, nonpartisan type mm -hmm. of process. And uh, yeah, there are some people who are saying, well, maybe what we should do is have legislation that requires major party candidates sitting presidents to release returns. And in fact, that was part of H.R. 1. That was that For the People Act that the, the Democratic uh, House Passed that had well that had a little bit of everything basically in it. HR one was a sprawling uh, type of uh, legislation for sure, and uh, you know one thing interestingly to me that HR one didn't have was any sort of a requirement that members of Congress release their tax information, and I don't know how that given the fact that that legislation had a whole bunch of everything. It was kind of odd to me, Kristen, that they just somehow forgot about including themselves in that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that could I think that could work for it work in different ways for Republicans and Democrats if that was included. But, you know, it's it's it kind of gives me the same feeling as like when, you know, Congress increases their salary. It's it's just kind of like, oh. It well, seems, yeah, it seems incredibly self-serving, but, well, you know, well, on the salary increasing, I'll say this, I'll say Congress routinely votes to to because the, the salary increase thing was was something that's supposed to be automatic. But every year somebody suggests right. that they don't take it. And, and I think that that's that's a horrible idea, because if you if you underpay members of Congress and given the jobs, the, the insane jobs that they have and the incredible demands and what they could be making otherwise, I think if you underpay people in government, they're going to find ways to make money otherwise. And certainly members of Congress do that. But I do. Yeah. But 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 to the to that issue on on tax returns, I I would not be in even if it were 
having members of Congress release their, their returns. I think that maybe uh, had, gives me fewer concerns about separation of powers type of issues. But even then, I feel like if the public feels that this is important, uh, then okay, then, you know, just like most presidential candidates have done, they release their returns voluntarily. And if you want to do that, great. If you don't, Donald Trump has demonstrated that for a lot of people, it doesn't matter. And if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. To me, it's the same thing like with medical medical records. Hey, if, mm-hmm. if, if we want to know exactly what Joe Biden or Donald Trump's physical or cognitive health is, they're certainly free to go to some independent doctor and have tests and, and have those released. They don't do that, right? They handpick their doctors and Donald Trump's guy. I remember at that point, was it Ronnie Ronnie Jackson? Is that the guy? Who He's own? a representative now. Okay, yeah. Who who said Donald Trump is basically like a 24-year-old triathlete. That's the kind of shape he said, you know, sort of thing. But, you know, whatever. If people think that's important, hey, they will kind of force the issue and they can use that in their decision-making process. But I'm uncomfortable with basically adding qualifications to office. Let the public decide what's important and what's not and kind of leave it at that, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I actually, I, I think this is a place where we are bipartisan. There I you do go. Agree okay, you well, happens, happens yeah. every once in a while. So, you know, yeah, and I should, yeah. I, I should also point out that certainly the, uh, Demo- the, the Democratic Senate could, if they wanted to, uh, uh, pick up on this mm-hmm. and request the tax returns. And that would be almost a, a, a easier process because the Supreme Court's already ruled. I don't think they're going to waste their time doing that. Also, I I, I don't even know if, if the House will. Well, the House is not supposed to be able to release returns. That would be I believe that would be uh, illegal, but certainly things leak and they could allude to certain elements in the returns in some kind of a report. But, boy, that would leave a bad taste in my mouth. And I kind of hope that they just don't do that, I guess. that's kinda, yeah. yeah. Well, they ha- I mean, you know, they have they have a, a short amount of time. They yeah. have a couple of weeks to try to get something out. But again, like it's it just seems like, again, this is going to cause a bunch of headaches. It's going to waste everyone's time you know, for another X amount of days. And I think the Senate is, you know, wise enough to, to under, well, hopefully they're wise enough to understand that and that we should move on. So do you think we can, how, speaking of moving on, do you think we can move on to a story that does not involve Donald Trump? I, what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think we, I think we can. I think, I hope we can. Um, so yeah, so, so the next story um, is one that involves some foreign government issues and a decision that was made last week uh, within the Biden administration. So this happened late in the week um, and it it didn't make a lot of news. It was funny because when you told me about this story, I was kind of like, you know, I saw that, but it Uh really didn't, you know, it didn't pop up on my screen as much as some of these other stories. So I had to go do a little homework on it. But um, the Biden administration announced that the Saudi Arabian crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has immunity with respect to a lawsuit over the murder of U.S.-based journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, which drew criticism, namely from Khashoggi's former fiance, which I thought was interesting. Uh, as a reminder, Khashoggi was killed in October 2018. He was killed brutally uh, by Saudi agents in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. And U.S. intelligence um, concluded afterwards that the operation had been ordered by 
Prince Mohammed. So this decision was made on the basis, this legal decision, I mean, was made on the basis of um, custom, legal custom. Basically, Justice Department attorneys stated in the actual documentation that the doctrine of head of state immunity is well established in customary international law. And so the fallout from this has been pretty, has been a lot more brutal than I thought. Uh, the decision has been met with praise and criticism. Um, and the praise, one person who praised uh, this decision of all people was Senator Tom Cotton, who's a pretty stalwart Republican. Um, he agreed with the immunity ruling as part of a longstanding legal custom. So he kind of went back to tradition and custom and said that this was correct. Um, although a lot of people are citing Biden's infamous, if you remember the fist bump, um, which I remember that made more news. I feel like that made more news yeah. uh, over the summer. And a lot of people have quite on both the right and the left actually have questioned the motivation be behind all of this. Um, it, it's been perceived as a political move. A lot of people are upset about it. Um, a lot of 9-11 uh, victims, families are upset about it. Um, and there are now a lot of questions kind of swirling around again about whether there are more ties uh, to the Saudi between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Um, and so Republicans and Democrats are both kind of coming out with this, just like they did earlier in the summer with the fist bump. I thought that was interesting. So it's it's kind of like an extension of everything that happened this summer, which is very, very interesting. But I'm glad you brought up this story. This this was one I enjoyed looking into, actually. It was very complex. Well, you know, it, it seems to me that uh, while, while the doctrine of head of state immunity is well established, I, mm -hmm. I, I don't often say that I agree with Senator Cotton uh, on that. It's uh, <laughs> a weird phrase to come up. But, but yeah. I, I would also say that uh, MBS, as, he's, as, he, as the cool kids call him, uh, is... <laughs> is not technically a head of state. I mean, he is the kind of de facto day-to-day -day leader of Saudi Arabia, but he's not the formal legal head of state. And this, this head of state immunity also is typically given uh, to uh, the head of government, the foreign minister. I, I guess I feel like the Biden administration, when Judge, Judge Bates asked them whether or not the uh, MBS had immunity, they could have reasonably gone either way. Um, and they chose to say, well, no, he gets this immunity. It wouldn't have been a bizarre, completely mm -hmm. strange decision the other way. And not only that, but if they had said he doesn't have immunity, uh, I took a look at the suit that uh, that Khashoggi's uh, uh, fiance, the civil suit that she filed. And, and, and MBS's attorneys are challenging this suit on on multiple grounds. And the head of state immunity thing would not have done away with that. I, I mean, I think it's very unlikely that this is going to go anywhere, even without the immunity. And, and, and not only that, but, but as a candidate, Joe Biden took a very hard line against MBS for, for his role in, in, in the, not just the murder, but the torture of, uh, of Khashoggi. And it seems like there's pretty strong evidence. The guy was tortured, beheaded. It was a horrific kind of thing. Right. And, and, and so on one level, I find it to be kind of disgusting. Uh, it seems like we are kind of uh, the fist bump thing is, is sort of part and parcel of this, right? We're sucking up, if you will, to, to be vulgar about to, to the Saudis. Why? It seems strange, but in a way, it's not. I, I, in thinking about this, I feel like we're in a weird situation where Saudi, where we need Saudi Arabia much more than Saudi Arabia needs us. 
uh, and because of our strategic kind of uh, orientation in the Middle East, I mean, we have to worry about uh, Saudi Arabia saying, you know what, we can kind of move toward China. And in fact, that's what Saudi Arabia has been doing in a pretty significant way and largely because of uh, moves that MBS has made. I mean, they're big, big trading partners. Saudi Arabia is China's largest supplier of crude oil. Uh, they took something like 27% of all Saudi Arabian oil experts and uh, exports last year. So they have really close ties. And, and even though Saudi Arabia is the biggest buyer of U.S. arms, it's not like they can't change some of that over to Chinese arms. And so, uh, yeah, it, uh, we're uh, we need them more than they need us, I think. And so the results in this kind of thing from a human rights perspective, I find it disgusting. Uh, but from sort of a uh, geopolitics kind of thing, I, I, I get it, though. I, I, I wish Joe Biden and the Biden administration had not done this. I think it was the morally wrong thing to do, and it wouldn't have practically mattered a whole lot, especially given the fact that after our begging of Saudi Arabia to help out right with the oil issue, they decided mm -hmm. to just go the other way. And and so I, if we just let ourselves be lapdogs, uh, then with, with no consequences, then I, I think we kind of deserve what we get in the way. Yeah, I mean, the, this, the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia has been rough for several years now. And it's, it's been, it, we're kind of dealing with a time where there's a lot of strain. Um, you know, Washington, j just uh, speaking generally, has been upset with, um, you know, OPEC's decision to cut all of their, their output, basically. Um, the U.S. is upset, like you said about that, because obviously, like they're they're essentially cutting off their supply, and and I I get it. I, same same as you again. Like I get why they're. I mean, his the decision. The, I shouldn't say his decision. The decision of the Biden administration to you know rely on legal precedent and and custom. I completely understand it. But at the same time, I'm also disgusted by it because it seemed like this may have been an opportunity to, you know, hold someone accountable that I think a lot of people agree was probably at some level directly or indirectly accountable. I mean, you know, the intelligence community said that they, they basically concluded that he ordered that operation, um, that, you know, that it came from him. Um, but I feel kind of like stuff is is it's stalemated right now and we're kind of dealing with this grudge match between washington and Riyadh, and um you know and now now we have to we have to deal with this so i understand why it was done um you know and and i think in a lot of ways politically um the biden administration can kind of rest on that i think it's i think it's it makes for an easy out for them basically is to say this is legal precedent this is you know custom he's he's a de facto head of state he's not really the official you know elected head of state but he's sort of this de facto head of state and so we can kind of pin this on him um it salvages that relationship to some extent so i i do i kind of lie exactly where you lie i i get it but it it makes me cringe yeah yeah <laughs> definitely well, you know, one thing we haven't talked about uh, today, and it makes sense because typically in, in lame duck uh, con congressional sessions, there's not a lot of legislative activity, right? Uh, but uh, there's at least maybe the prospect for some bi actual bipartisan legislation in the last few weeks of, of Congress, right? 
Yeah. So, so this is a really interesting, I have been following this one um, just because it's interesting. And again, it, it relates to everything we were talking about with the first two stories about there being a timeline and, you know, there's, there's this, been this push to try to, you know, get this legislation passed. Um, so this week, the Senate was really scrambling to put together um, a bipartisan kind of lame duck deal regarding cannabis legislation. So Democrat and Republican leaders, including the Senate banking chair, Sherrod Brown, met with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to talk about uh, something called the Safe Banking Act. Um, and just to kind of uh, go into what's necessary for this to pass. Um, and this is according to Republicans and Democrats. They've determined that they must find a pairing of financial services and criminal justice reform centered cannabis legislation that will unify Republicans and Democrats. So they have to be able to come together on this legislation. And leaders on both sides must sign off. So the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee must sign off on this. And then to kind of tandem with that, there's something called the HOPE Act, which was introduced by Republican Representative Dave Joyce and Democrat Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which could create grants for state expungement programs. So effectively, there's some interesting legislation on the table, um, you know, regarding cannabis reform. And the fallout has been, you know, some Republicans have kind of warmed up to this, all of this legislation. Um, there still seems to be a little bit of gridlock. Um, many Republicans are saying that the hope, the conservative Republicans, I should say, say that uh, the HOPE Act and the Safe Banking Act go too far. And there are actually progressive Democrats who argue that it doesn't go far yeah, enough. So again, as always. kind of getting into the same as. Yeah, I know it's, I sound like a broken record, but it's true. I mean, so they're so they're kind of like hustling and rushing to try to put something together that's at least palatable um, to pass this before January, which, uh, you know, I think this is a. I think this is a good opportunity to kind of go out with a bang. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and you know, the Safe Banking Act uh, has, boy, the House keeps on plugging away at this. It's passed the House yeah. six separate times. And yeah. every, every time it's been a bipartisan thing. Uh, and, and I think to me, this this seems to be, uh, you can understand why it's bipartisan, because it sort of unites uh, uh, a lot of, sort of free market folks on the right and maybe more socially liberal folks on the left, because if you uh, if you shield financial institutions from potential federal prosecution for you know providing financial services to these cannabis businesses that are well that are le- operating legally under the laws of their state or states they work in, that means less reliance on that kind of cash only sort of thing that makes it a lot safer. It's a crime issue, right? A crime prevention issue. It allows these businesses to expand much more easily. And that's, this is obviously a growing market as we see more and more States legalize, right? Uh, uh, 27 billion in, in legal sales in 2021 based on data from at least from one industry journal and that's pred- that's predicted to go well up in the next few years and so uh, to me this is kind of a no-brainer uh type of thing at least the safe act i think and so i wanted to get before we moved on to the hope act what do you think about the the safe act Oh, I, I think I also think it's a no brainer. I'm one of the uh, I'm one of the Republicans who would be all for this if, if I if I was sitting in one of those seats, um, just because I, I think that to some extent um, and, I'm, and I'm looking at this from a from a practicality point of view. 
there are so many issues and, and, you know, my husband's an attorney and I know how backed up just the legal system locally, you know, the state legal system, and also the federal legal system is, um, we're so backed up as it is. And I think, you know, this is becoming a growing industry. I think also public sentiment, again, it's not the end all be all. We talked about that earlier, but, but it is worth something. And I think, you know, you have an overwhelming majority of, of voters who, at least support cannabis, uh, you know, cannabis production, cannabis product sales, um, even, you know, medical marijuana, you have a, a kind of a growing, a younger growing population of voters um, that supports it. So I think it's, I think it's definitely a place where we can come together. Again, um, it's, I think what's going to be tricky with the Safe Banking Act is, is finding that sweet spot. Um, that makes more progressive Democrats happy and also makes conservative Republicans happy. I don't know that you're ever going to get the far factions of either no, of those groups. No, yeah. I think you've got a lot of, yeah, I think you've got a lot of conservative, particularly religious Republicans who are just opposed to this on premise and principle. And I think you have a lot of progressive Democrats who, you know, believe that that this doesn't even go far enough and that everything should be legalized. But I think for most of us who are kind of in the middle of those two things, whether we're kind of leaning to the right, like I I am or we're leaning to the left. I think, you know, in my case as more of a free market Republican, I think I think this is a really good step forward. And it also kind of clears the path for other issues, um, you know, in, in within the legal system to to, uh, you know, to take precedent over this, because I think there's a lot of unnecessary legislation and, and you know, a, a lot of unnecessary legal action taken here. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the big problems is when you when you legalize and then you legalize and overregulate and overtax, what that does is it tends to drive a lot into the illegal market. And the illegal pot market is still much bigger in part because what a lot of states have found is that because they put so many regulations and taxes on it, that it's just the, the illegal market can still vastly undercut. And so if you legalize and kind of normalize and, and but then the prices are much higher in the legal market, say, so, well, what's pot's fine. I'll just buy it from from Bob on the corner here. It costs half as much and it's easier. I mean, you set up a really bad situation. So if you're going to legalize, make it so that the legal market can at least come close to competing with the illegal market. I think that's a that's a pretty wise general principle. Uh, so right, right, and and a and a kind of a a tangent issue to this is the issue of um, consumption of other drugs that a lot of this unregulated black market sort of pot is laced with. Um, you know, we're hearing so much about like the the fentanyl, uh, the fentanyl, the huge fentanyl problem that we have and problems with prescription drugs. And, you know, I can't even keep up anymore. But, you know, all the different, you know, new, um, you know, man-made drugs that are making their, they're finding their way into uh, marijuana sold on the black market. And I, I think this is a way to... Um, deal with that in in an effective way to deal with that. Um, And, you know, if we normalize it, if we make it less of a problem for companies to, you know, create businesses and and mass produce marijuana and to sell it without, you know, the the possibility of repercussions, legal repercussions, banking, you know, financial repercussions, et cetera, et cetera. I think, you know, possibly, again, it's not going to, it's not going to make the problem go away by any means, but it'll certainly lessen the impact of that problem, I think. 
And you know, to, to me, the Hope Act too makes makes a makes a lot. Now, the I got to say, the uh, I love these acronyms, right? Harnessing opportunities for by pursuing expungement. Somebody <laughs> somebody really tried hard on that, but but to me, it this is like a tiny thing, right? I mean, it's twenty million dollars over ten years, so it's basically it's not even pocket lint in the budget, right? And it's it's only it would only go to states that actually decide they want expungement programs. And it would only help to kind of cover some of their expenses. So it's, I mean, to me, this is about as small potatoes as small potatoes gets. And sure, it might, it might help a little bit. And I'm, I'm all for it. If a state wants to pursue expungement, great. And if the federal government can help them out a little bit with that, okay, fine. But to me, this is so, so tiny. It's, it's almost symbolic, you know. And, and that's why I guess I think that's why I think it's getting the at least limited amount of bipartisan support that it is. Although I know that anyone on the right has problems probably uh, voting for anything that was introduced by AOC. So there's that, you know. Yeah, yeah it's funny because I, I was actually surprised to see her name on this. But, um, you know, I, I think, again, like I was reading some of the some of the uh, quotes from uh, different, you know, different leaders in, in Congress. I think the thing about the HOPE Act that, is attractive to a lot of Republicans and why I think they're coming around particularly to, to this bit of legislation is because it's such a, like you said, small potatoes. It's such a, it's a small, you know, it's a very small investment um, in the grand scheme of things. You know, is it going to have a huge impact? Probably not, but it will have an impact. Um, and that's why I think a lot of Republicans are warming to this. I think they're, I think some are warm, warming to the safe banking act, which is, you know, arguably going to have much bigger implications. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I have, I have hope, I have hope that, that this will, you know, pass, but again, like times, times tick in here yeah, so before other things take precedent. And, um, you know, I, I hope, I hope that we get some meaningful bipartisan legislation passed it's here. Always a nice thing to, to see happen for sure. So, you know, uh, before we go today, I, I, w I was saying to, to Kristen earlier this week, one of the things I really miss uh, about not doing the show with her is that she always has such interesting recommendations. She uh, she reads and watches things like, oh, that sounds really, really cool. And so I thought we would end with a recommendation because I am eager to hear what you have for us today, Kristen. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I wrote down, I've, I've been reading a ton, um, just uh, especially like late, late at night when I can't go to sleep. And um, something that I recently, I reread it. Um, I think I've, I mentioned a long time ago that I really love Eric Larson. Um, he's, he's writes a lot of really great historical nonfiction. He wrote like um, Devil in the White City, which is really, really good. Uh, he wrote Isaac Storm, Dead Wake, uh, Thunderstruck, all excellent. But I reread, I've been really into history lately, just kind of like a a current interest of mine and i've been particularly interested in winston churchill because my youngest son really loves winston churchill and so i reread his book the splendid in the vile uh which is about um churchill's persuasion of uh Rose president roosevelt he was trying to argue with president roosevelt that britain and the u.s should stick together uh in world war ii and that they were like a worthy a worthy ally um, and just, you know, how hard he worked to maintain that friendship. And it was just, it was something, it's something that a lot of history books gloss over is that kind of allyship between the U S and, and Britain and how, you know, how, how actually tense things were between the two nations. And so I, I just reread that book and it's so good. Um, I mean, just anything by Eric Larson, but that, that's like the, that was the last thing I re I just finished it last weekend. Again, the second time, really good. 
And then the other thing I've been really into, and I know probably a lot of listeners are into this. I've been so hooked on Yellowstone this season. It's so good so far. I'm I'm so into that show. I just think it's a beautifully shot show and it's so compelling. I mean, again, it's, and it got political this season because John Dutton became governor of Montana. (laughs) I think those two are excellent. They they will, uh, Yellowstone, I've been meaning to watch for a while. It's just one of those things where it's been a crazy, a crazy semester for me and I haven't gotten, gotten to it, but it's definitely, on my list, and uh, yes, London Nevada sounds great. So I, I've got a, I've got a couple of recommendations too. One is actually something that I tried to recommend last week, but I garbled the recommendation so much I went back in post production and pulled it off because it made no sense. Uh, so I don't know. It was a long week, and but anyway. Uh, so I, I got it right this week. Uh, it's a it's a song. And so uh, there's very low barrier to entry here. It's a long song, around nine minutes and 15 seconds, but totally worth your nine minutes and 15 seconds. I even have a YouTube link, so it's free. It's a song called Caravan, not the Van Morrison song some people might be familiar with. It's also a very solid song, uh, one of my favorites. But a song, uh, this one is it's a Duke Ellington song, actually, uh, performed in this case by uh, the drummers, uh, John Wasson. And it's it's... It's amazing, uh, transformative. If it, it, the, the display of drumming virtuosity is is just blows my mind. It, you have to get into it. It takes it takes about well four minutes or so to you really get to the heart of it. But then it's just it's the sort of thing where I recommend making sure you have a, a quiet room and a good set of speakers or headphones and some time. And it's just a it's just an astonishingly amazing experience well worth nine minutes and 15 seconds of your time uh so that's my first recommendation my second one i just googled it it looks i'm gonna listen to it after we get I, off it, it is it is wow <laughs> yeah. i was like i just my, my okay. mouth literally kind of fell open at one point just thinking how can a human being actually do this but yeah uh my second one if you have a little more time recommended to me uh, uh about a week or two ago and i totally got sucked in it's a show called uh inside man i don't know if you're familiar with this one it's it's so good okay you know i'm talking about yes i am it's Uh, very good limited series i don't know it's netflix i think it's netflix or whatever but i'll I'll put the link on but yeah Yeah. Uh, stanley tucci plays a a death row guy who helps to solve uh, a mystery and it is yeah i i didn't have the time but i made the time and okay now i'm totally backed up because of it because it's so totally sucked me in and yeah uh amazing well i well well worth my time i guess i will say so for a longer thing so there we go those are our recommendations and uh after we're done uh well, in just a minute here actually Kristen and i will be doing our supporters midweek show and we're going to be talking about the perhaps another supreme court leak from actually from justice alito and what that might mean uh uh the alaska midterms why it took so long and what we think about those results and also that crazy race between uh not my favorite uh, not my favorite republican house member but certainly always a, a worth our entertaining House member, uh, Lauren Boebert, and she looks like she's going to squeak the victory over uh, in Colorado District there. And what that has to say maybe about our politics and maybe if we have some time, some listener questions. There are some listeners who had questions specifically for Kristen after all the time she's been away. And so we're going to try to get to as much of that as we can on the supporters bonus show. And if you're not already a supporter, we hope you will consider becoming one, not just for that bonus show. 
But for there's other good stuff as well, like ad-free versions of everything we do and other various things to various levels. To check it all out, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us on Venmo or at politicsguys or through PayPal. And all the support links are in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. But sometimes you, know, you might want to get all that, get the, the midweek show, but you're not financially in a spot where you can support the show. Totally not a problem. A bunch of people are in that position. We're happy to help you out. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make sure you get the bonus show every single week. And whether you're a supporter or not, what really does help us out is, is subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on the podcast app you listen on and sharing episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us, you have a question, comment, gripe, manifesto, whatever you got, uh, and you want to send it to us, Email still works, mailthepoliticsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find those links in the show notes. And finally, a special thanks, as always, to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.